वेलकम टू सिंटॉक सिंटॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द डिफिकल्टी विद बिलीविंग think about the phenomenon of believing using concepts of logic performance theory decision and game theory and philosophy why is it difficult to believe what are the interrelationships between belief doubt action habit knowledge faith and reason why are false beliefs sometimes so resilient how can we infer the beliefs of animals or children is belief revision always preceded by doubt do we always have to take the other into account while forming our beliefs how is individual belief different from collective belief and in the future can one theoretically influence another into believing almost anything we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today Dr. Soumya Vrat Chaudhary he graduated in economics and later shifted to semiotics and philosophy he has been a theater actor and director for over 20 years and also teaches theater and performance studies in JNU Delhi Professor Rohit Parekh he was educated in Bombay University and has all his degrees from Harvard he started in logic and computer science and has since shifted towards philosophy and social concerns social software is his current main interest is currently with cuny new york rohit bhai why don't we set the ball rolling with you um to ask the most important question first what is belief uh, to you as a philosopher as a logician as a mathematician what is belief well uh there is a there is a favorite paper of mine uh written by charles purse in the 19th century the fixation of belief yeah and it's still a classic and he points to four different kinds of ways of believing mm-hmm. one of them is where a person is adamant uh about his beliefs i would say perhaps donald trump is an example of someone who will not give up his beliefs <laughs> mm another way of believing is to be governed by authority mm-hmm. right and the authority may be rested vested in an individual or it may be vested in a community and very often such authority requires certain irrational beliefs on the part of the community themselves right like for example the earth is 6000 years old mm. or whatever and the and the and one of the consequences of this is it separates the community from other people because other people are not able to participate in these beliefs so you retain your distinction precisely by having beliefs which are absurd right its third way which is much much pursued by philosophers is to uh rely on some abstract uh notions which are given to 
you and which are obvious. I mean, a little bit like axioms in mathematics, mm -hmm. which are taken as self-evident, but there are also certain things in philosophy which have been taken as self-evident by this philosopher, that philosopher. And then sometimes different philosophers will disagree, and so you have various various uh, conflicts. And the last way that Peirce talks about, the last basis for belief, is science, where you experiment and then you revise your beliefs as necessary and so on and so forth. And perhaps at, at the end, people who are committed to the scientific method will converge in their beliefs. Now, what is very interesting is that Peirce, even though he says that the scientific method is the best, does not disdain the other three bases for beliefs. For example, he says that false beliefs, for example, in the existence of gods or whatever it is, has led to impressive architecture. I mean, that the, some, of, some of the monuments built by human beings having irrational beliefs are comparable to majestic things like the monuments constructed by nature. Mm. Uh, he also says that uh, in, in the practical domain, a person uh, tends to have beliefs which are correct for the simple reason that if you have incorrect beliefs, you end up taking actions which are not beneficial to yourself and you can come to harm. And he says evolution would tend to lead people to have correct beliefs in practical domains. But he said outside the practical domains, it's much more pleasing, uh, much more beneficial to have beliefs which are pleasing. For example, to come back to the 6,000 years old case, uh, Ben Carson, one of the presidential candidates, believes that the earth is 6,000 years old. And as far as I can see, that belief does him no harm. Yeah. And so there could be harmless beliefs and yes. there could be harmful beliefs. Yes. And in the non-practical domain, it's totally all right to hold yes. any sort of belief. It At the matter. individual level. Okay, and so what's the distinction between the individual level and the collective? Right, so for example, if a person who believes that, uh, let's suppose that death is the annihilation, then a person who believes that if he behaves in such and such a way, then he will go to heaven at death. Mm -hmm. Such a person enjoys the pleasure of a good expectation and he's not going to feel any disappointment because he's <laughs> not going to say, oh, I'm dead and I was wrong because that is not going to happen. So it's a Peirce gives this as an example of a way in which it can be beneficial to have a false belief. The difficulty is that people with different false beliefs can quarrel with each other. And right. that can sometimes just result in polite disagreement, but sometimes it can also result in conflicts like war. And these can sometimes be two different sorts of false beliefs. It doesn't necessarily need to be a false belief against a true belief. Right, so some yes, of these of quarrels and disagreements yes, and things of that sort. Absolutely, interesting, interesting. Right. What is belief for you, Shomo? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, this was a very lucid and useful introduction to Peirce's uh, essay. Uh, uh, you know, I look at belief also in uh, in a simple reduction of belief to two kinds of statements. Mm -hmm. Because belief is also to state a belief, to declare a belief, to make the belief utterance. So I think there are two two basic um, utterances that are possible. One is uh, what could be called the believing that, the that utterance. So for instance, I believe that I will go to heaven after dying. Yeah. Okay. But then there is also a belief in statement, the in statement of belief. So I say, I believe in salvation. I believe in heaven. Now, the two are not the same. How are they different? They are different in the sense that when I make a statement about my going to heaven, it's 
also tinged very clearly with something like hope, with something like expectation. It has a universal basis, but the universal basis immediately translated into a personal horizon. But in the case of saying, I believe in heaven, is a statement which is a universal statement. It is a general statement that there is such a thing as heaven. So in that sense, it is an objective belief in the existence of heaven. So mm -hmm. from which something like a doctrine follows. Mm -hmm. To say that I believe that I'll go to heaven, no doctrine necessarily follows mm -hmm. from it. But to say that there is heaven is to have a doctrinal belief. So for you, the that in distinction is really the subjective objective. Well, to begin with, analytically speaking, to begin with, but very mm -hmm. clearly, the two are very closely related to each other. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if I make a statement like, I am going to go to heaven, I believe I'm going to go to heaven, there is very clearly an emotion which is attached to it, mm -hmm. which is hope, but also confidence mm -hmm. in one's virtue, in one's worthiness. Mm -hmm. But when I say that I believe in heaven, it's not necessary that there is a particular emotion that is uh, attached to that belief. It's a doctrinal. To that extent, it's an objective statement. But the problem is that believing is a state of emotion, or at least it, you're right, it's a subjective state. Because belief exactly is not a factual utterance. So belief, is it, is it an affect for you? Now, that's the interesting thing. Belief implies an affect. Mm -hmm. Belief implies that it is you who is putting in something into that belief, holding on to it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time... So you invested in it. Invested in it. But when I make a statement to the effect that I believe in, then strangely, it has a completely objective form. Mm -hmm. so the question is, where does the emotion come from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can very well understand as an individual that I have an emotion in wanting to go to heaven mm -hmm. and believing in such a eventuality. Mm -hmm. But to believe in, for instance, the sacredness of life, Mm. to believe in equality. Mm. Where is the emotion coming from? And yet belief is some sort of an emotion. Mm. Now, I think there is a very interesting question which is uh, intrinsic to this uh, gap between the believing in the objective. So I will, in a sense, take a cue from uh, Professor Parekh's statement, Rohit Bhai, sorry, uh, statement that beliefs have an axiomatic uh, appearance. So they are like axioms. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, if I say life is sacred, I can't prove it. I don't want to prove it. It's like an axiom. And is there a way in which, uh, Shomo, you would think that the that or the in, yeah. which of these is more fixated, to use Pears' term again? I mean, is is there a distinction of that sort well, possible? Well, clearly, well, clearly, in appearance, it's the in-statement that's more fixated. Yeah. Because it is an abstract, enduring principle or an axiom that you're putting your belief in. Mm. And in the... You uh, buy into it. You buy into it. But mm. in the that statement, it seems to be something which is sort of tailored to your expectations. To that extent, it's also strategic sort of a belief. That depending on where you are in your pragmatic position in life, you have a particular belief about the future, for instance. Mm. Yeah, But interestingly, in terms of action, in terms of how you actually act upon it, Mm. Now, you see that people who have a very strong personal belief that they're going to go to heaven or they're going to win a huge prize after 10 years when they buy lotteries or whatever, actually are very fixated onto that belief. So they keep repeating their habits. In, And if you ask them, why do you do this? They'll say, oh, I believe that this is going to yield a great future for me. 
Interesting. And in the other case, hmm. just to finish the point, in the other case, in the statement of the in the in statement, no, it appears like an axiom. Now, the difference is that a mathematical axiom, and of course, Rohit Bhai will correct me, he's the one who knows more about this than I do, but still, an axiom is, after all, a statement which in itself is like a principle. It's like a postulate. It itself is not a statement invested with affect. An axiom is a statement from which certain theorems, certain operations follow. But the moment I make it a belief, I, in a way, make it possible that I put affect into it. So I can actually go ahead and um, propagate that belief, yeah. try and persuade others or also kill others for that belief. And and eventually, iteratively, are all beliefs, and I know you made four distinctions, Rohit Bhai, and uh, Shoma, you could come in as well on this. Uh, iteratively, are all beliefs eventually based on facts? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, and And... and what makes belief so resilient? Yes. Well, I think that, again, uh, what what per se is, is relevant because there are contexts in which having a false belief leads to bad consequences and you tend to drop those false beliefs. But there are other situations where a false belief has certain advantages. One, of course, is a pleasant false belief which is not contrary to experience, is not nice to have. But then there is another way in which a false belief can make you a member of a community. A community shares certain false beliefs and it's important that these beliefs are false or even absurd because if these <laughs> beliefs are absurd, then yeah. others cannot be expected to take take them in. I mean, right. take for example, uh, <laughs> I hope people will not consider this controversial, but the idea that the bread and the wine at, 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 at communion are literally the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, this is, of course, not experimentally tested, nor yep. can it be experimentally tested. But if you are a devout person who believes these things, you simply cannot expect other people to go along with it. And so it puts a barrier between you and them, but it also preserves the coherence of your own community. Right. right? And now an important thing is that when you are dealing with phenomena at a large scale, right, like world politics or even national politics, you cannot act as an individual. In fact, it's a well-known technical result that voting is a, is a is a is a is a is a foolish thing to do for the simple reason that the time <laughs> you spent in voting is not going to be compensated by any possible effect that you will have on the result of the election, right? So uh, you're referring to Arrow's result. Who's which result are you? No, this is to? not Arrow's result. This sure. is something something much milder, which you don't even need Arrow for that. It's okay. just that the the probability of any particular vote influencing an election. I mean, even in the Florida case, where. Uh, things were really touch and go. There were a few hundred votes involved. But and this so, is a propagated belief that yes. you need to vote and you need, one needs to yes. make democracy work right. and it's right. this performance and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, exactly. So, uh, for example, in New York, uh, at, at the last election, I went to the voting booths to vote and the lines were very long. So I decided to go away. And actually, I was intending to come back. But some of the women who were there, who were my neighbors, scolded me and said <laughs> I was forsaking my duty. Right? And what could I say? I mean, I could hardly explain to them a theorem. <laughs> Does this showed... resonate with you in any yeah, way? Shall yeah, we? it's yes. a very interesting point. Now, the thing is, when we speak in terms of belief and a false belief right. or a true belief, 
belief, it is referred to some sort of a paradigm or a criterion of truth. Uh, and that criterion has to, in a sense, come from fact, from yes. some kind of a factual ground, factual bottom line. Otherwise, yes. to speak of a false belief does not make sense. Even if that belief is patently absurd and false for a reason, yes. like uh, Rohit Bhai very nicely explained, yeah. that you uh, could have a false belief which is extremely beneficial for reasons of community, individual, and all that. Nevertheless, these are particular rational calculations which are grounded upon something like a reality principle or a fact principle, if you want to put it like that. Mm. Now, that having that being the case... I think we need to uh, keep in mind that when we actually still believe in the strong sense of the word, for instance, believe in the duty of voting, mm -hmm. uh, then both things are in question. One is the false expectation that my single vote is going to affect the result. That is a false expectation mm -hmm. by sheer, like he said, by the sheer laws of probability. But on the other hand, this strong belief is also a subjective belief uh, which uh, clearly comes from, of course, there's propagation and there is a certain reason for governments and regimes of power to make you participate in the process, not so much of the election, but the political process itself, which is to make power circulate through you. So election is not just voting. Right. That's it very is also circulation of power. That's very interesting. And, and, and in that sense, belief is also an instrument of power. Mm. Well, why mm. do you do it? Now, mm. Alexis de Tocqueville, one of the great uh, yeah. um, French Revolution, post-French Revolution historians and thinkers, said that, you know, uh, many things in the West, for instance, jury service. In the West, jury service is something which has been there from the beginning, from the Greek times, that you have the people from, not the legal profession, but ordinary citizens who sit on the serve jury. Serve on the jury. Yeah, serve on the jury. Now, they clearly don't actually go by the law of evidence, mostly. Yeah, they go by their believing who is the guilty party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To that extent, they are pretty much, to some extent, danger to the law. And yet, it's something that is very actively practiced in the West in several societies. Why? And Tokevi said that the most important thing in the jury service is the fact that by being in the jury, you subjectively participate in the law. Right. Even if objectively you militate against the law. Yeah, And society takes a call on that. It says yeah. this subjective participation, even on the expense of some amount of objective error, is something to be encouraged. It's very interesting. And you know, I think it's a great time to bring in this element of are all beliefs networks in some form or fashion? Because I mean, for if one holds a belief, I mean, is there a single orphan belief? I mean, do you, is there any belief that one can hold singly or are all beliefs networks of some sort? No, not all beliefs are networked. But what I was saying was, of course, under practical circumstances, you have your real experience to judge the truth of your beliefs. Mm -hmm. But for other kinds of beliefs, it's important to be in coherence with other people. And as I said earlier, that uh, in, a, in a particular election, a single vote cannot make a difference, but right. a block vote can make a difference. Right. right, And being a member of a block means that you subscribe to certain beliefs which are shared by every member of the block. And shared everyone, beliefs. Yes. yes. And everyone in that block will vote in a way or in the same way or is expected to vote, which means that politicians will not address you, but they'll address the block to which you belong. So then as a member of a block, you acquire a derivative power.
that's so interesting that's really interesting and just changing tracks just a little bit rohit bhai is how does one infer what beliefs are um because i mean do habits actions give it all away how complicated how complex is that how do you infer what someone's beliefs is how how do you infer what an animal believes for yes. example how do you infer what children believe who are right. pre articulate right is, now as far as animals and children are concerned then they really have to be confined to the practical domain right mm-hmm. i mean for example uh, why does a mouse go in a certain location because he believes that that's where the cheese is right, right? or why does a child uh, start crying because he believes that his mother is not going to come back mm-hmm. right so uh, you can connect their actions with their beliefs and the actions typically have immediate consequences right now there is this other level of belief uh, which is uh, which cannot be held by non english speaking by non language speaking creatures right and uh, those you can only deal with by asking them because uh, is of uh, take do you believe in heaven you he can hardly say oh yes here it is right? It, right it is reduced to the level of words and so it's amazing how much of human reality takes place just at that level where there is neither truth nor falsehood but just talk <laughs> yeah so i think i think that's crucial but it's it also has a somewhat serious um, basis mm-hmm. because human life and social existence is also characterized by what the mathematician goret called undecidability mm-hmm. um we are in real situations with real parameters but those parameters simply do not allow us a decidable path to take in which case we have to invent a certain principle on the spot improvise if you want to call it a belief you could but it's not always a belief in the structured sense of the word it's also an improvised principle based on which you take a decision you make a decision uh because the objectively the situation is not giving you the parameter which is going to then determine your action now this is a crucial thing of undecidability in the existential world not just in the formal mathematical world which anyway godel right. proved in a revolutionary theorem yeah uh, so that's something i think we should take believe very seriously not as merely as belief but also as improvisation as creativity right that's interesting and what is doubt by extension now yeah now the question is now doubt of course is a very famous thanks to descartes yeah uh, became the very starting point of modern philosophy Yeah, one can almost rephrase that to say, "I doubt, therefore I am." Exactly, it is <laughs> my doubt, therefore I am. Kukita yeah. is doubting Kukita. Yeah. So it, it, it's not it's 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 not a caricature. It's not a ironic change, uh, shifting of Descartes' statement. Yeah, I mean, it is the real statement. Hmm. He did say, "I doubt, therefore I am." So yeah. when I say I think, I actually am saying I'm doubt. Hmm. I am doubting. Hmm. Uh, so that is the act of thinking, hmm. uh, which is to doubt. And there's a whole process of putting the doubt into operation. Mm-hmm. in the uh, in the, the first principles of descartes mm. in which everything that is evident to your senses you put to doubt you take a skeptical view of it's also called methodological doubt yeah so through methodological doubt you desire to come to a substantive ground which is your existence now that of course is a, is the starting point of modern philosophy in a way 
one can always go to cake cart from there yeah exactly right one can one can, one can only be sure of one's own existence and everything else uh, uh, yeah and well, it, yeah again yeah. when one says one can only be sure of one's own existence even their existence is not a factual factical existence right existence is also <laughs> something which is coming into being with the act of of positing your existence so in in that sense existence is not something which stands outside as an ontology yeah but here is existence which for instance jean paul sartre in his great book being a nothingness uh, said that ontology is something which is given to us our beings are not something we can create it's given to us and from there we what we can do is make action we can act yeah we can't be in so far as we can't choose to be yeah but what we can do is to make our being into in a sense the primordial ground for action so we are absolutely responsible for our actions yeah yeah you so, deserve the face you have at the age of 50 years i would say yeah, absolutely <laughs> quite right and uh, what is doubt for you as a logician rod bhai what is doubt is belief revision always preceded by doubt well i first want to address uh, something Please. that he said Uh, because there is this famous case of Buridan's ass mm-hmm. right where a donkey is exactly midway between two heaps of grass mm. heaps heaps of straw or whatever sure. and because they are equally distant he cannot make up his mind which one to choose and he starves <laughs> to death yeah. right actually there was a case like that at a colloquium at Boston University where one of the people who was visiting asked me where there was a toilet and uh, <laughs> I explained that there were two toilets exactly equidistant from him and so we for a, for a moment he had <laughs> some conflict as to what he should do but he did in fact choose one and did not starve to death or do anything else right but I think that there are fundamental questions right mm. on which people need to have an answer and certainly what will happen to me after death or will there be anything to happen at all right mm. this this is this is a fundamental question for people and a science of course does not give an answer right in fact science does not uh, even give an answer to the following question uh, bill cosby uh, has recently been accused of certain sexual misadventures yeah. and there was this polish director uh, roman polanski roman polanski yeah. he was also accused of sexual misadventures right yeah. Yeah. now uh in in both these cases the the person uh the person that you're punishing even if those things did happen is not the po- person who did those things right yes. and science does not tell you that they are the same person in fact science tells you quite explicitly they are different persons right so when we uh when we punish the old cosby for something done by the young cosby or punish the old polanski polanski for something done by the young polanski then we are making an assumption which is in fact not in any way substantiated by science right and this this was a point that was made in a very famous dialogue milinda panna uh, between the greek king milinda and a buddhist monk nagsena right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, here it seems like when we decide that we want to punish bill cosby or we want to punish uh punish uh, polanski we are not relying on science nor are we relying on any facts i mean there is no experiment which will tell us that cosby now and cosby then are the same person it's just something we have to decide and perhaps we decide for some other reason we feel like punishing him so of all the persons in the world at any moment in time yeah 
the older Polanski or the older Bill Cosby is the most responsible for the younger Polanski or the younger Cosby. Would you say that? I mean, of course, personhood may not be continuous in the this sense. This is very but, tricky, you know. Yes, this is really tricky. tricky. Because um, theology, for instance, would say not just one person, the entire world. Exactly. Uh, there's a debate, uh, there's a controversy in uh, the time of Descartes um, with other theologians like Nicolas Malebranche. Yes. Mm. Uh, where the question of the continuous creation of the world arose, that can the world exist at any moment right. if God does not create it at that moment? The right. world will disappear. Yeah. Right. Including every person. To right. that extent, by that logic, anything that I do today at Is, this moment has to be immediately put into continuity only by God or some or force like that. Yes. yes. To that extent, nobody is the same person at every moment. You know, right. the, the Heraclitus says said that you can't yes. step into the same, same river. Cross the same river twice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, by all those <laughs> logics there, it's very tricky. But, but we have to be very clear here that in the world of law, politics, society, this particular quibble is it appearing as a real question or is it appearing as a little bit of a sophism? Because after all, no law says that we are actually punishing... The same person. The same person. Right. The law already uses an abstraction, a convention. So if you go to Latin law, which is the basis of all law, including Indian law, modern law that is, uh, all law is based on the notion of persona, not an individual. That is the particular individual. The word persona in Latin means both face and mask. So law already assumes that you're wearing a mask. The mask of the general individual, the mask of your family. In old Latin law, Roman law, your, ident your personality was determined by the status of your family. In old Hindu law, your identity is determined by your caste. Yes. Right. These are all personas. So no law is pretending that they're actually punishing that individual, organic, biological person. Right, yeah. right, So right. law is pretty much aware of this. Quote. Right, right, right. You know? It has to be. It's quite yeah. fundamental to... Yeah. Why don't we change tracks a little bit, uh, Shomo, and yeah. go to the world you're very familiar with, the world of theater, fiction, cinema, and sure. yes. clearly the whole reason why it's called fiction is, I mean, we, we, we know it's not for real, real within quotes. Why do we believe it nonetheless? Why why is it why is the affective response as though it is real? How does the suspension of disbelief happen? And is there something interesting there philosophically or otherwise? Well, of course, I think there is. Uh, let's take this very notion of persona and uh, think about it for a moment. Now, this word persona means a mask, but it does, just doesn't mean a mask. It means a particular kind of mask. Mm -hmm. And that's also the theater actor's mask. Mm -hmm. So the same word is used both in the case of law and in the case of theater. Mm -hmm. So the Greek actor is wearing a mask, the Roman actor is wearing a mask, and the legal person is also a masked person. Mm -hmm. It is the mask of family, mask of your status, mask of gender. Yeah, These are all generalities. Mm -hmm. So in a way, theater is already moving from the absolutely granulated particular individual to something which is in the order of generality. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, when we enter the theater, we already enter a certain kind of formal or informal mostly contract that we will not look at what happens in the theater in the order of empirical particular life as it is lived moment to moment. We'll mm -hmm. already take the theater place, space of theater, as a place of what is called representation. 
So it's already reframed. Already reframed. Mm. So if it's already reframed, then already there is a certain suspension of what in ordinary life we continuously employ, which is the criterion of testing. Mm-hmm. Whether what the other person says or does is based on some sort of a factual ground or a truth's criterion. Mm. In theater, there is a, not a suspension merely, but also an alienation of that truth criterion. That's very interesting. And one can ob- obviously extend this into general, more general ritual spaces. Absolutely, and, yes. And not just be confined to performance spaces. Of course, rituals are performances as well. Quite right, ways. quite right. Mm. I think the ritual space is uh, particularly fascinating because in the ritual space, what you have is the presence of bodies. Because in the theater, what you have is the presence of bodies. Bodies of actors, bodies yeah. of people on stage uh, in the performance space. And the audience, which is outside that space and yet in a rarefied atmosphere of the architecture of the theater. But when it comes to ritual, you have a further intensification of this relationship. Because in ritual, on the one hand, there is no pretense of playing characters, role-playing. Right. In the sense of fictional characters. Right. Rituals are not really fictions. What rituals are, are codifications of reality where the ordinary continuum of reality is given a particular kind of an involution or a special meaning. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So rituals are also thresholds. Mm. So for instance, we walk through this through a threshold in this room. Yeah. The moment we come into this room, we are in the a rarefied atmosphere. Right. Ritual. So this is a ritual. Yeah. What we are doing right here is a ritual. Yeah. Uh, unlike a theater, where there is apparently a clear break and a suspension is implied. In ritual, there is no suspension. But at the same time, it's not the ordinary... And is this a break in the persona as well? It's not a break, it's a modulation. Modulation. It's a modulation. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, belief is... I mean, the example though, I don't want to take too idiomatic or localized an expression, uh, an, an example. But you have many rituals in different parts of the world, including India, where you take ordinary human beings as gods. Right. You perform arti. You perform... Ramlila. Uh, Ramlila, yeah. Right. Ritual. Now, clearly, it is not the same thing as believing that that person is the same God as God in heaven. Yeah. It is a human body. Yeah. But there is a modulation of that body and your relationship to the body. Yeah. Within yeah. the ritual codification. Okay. So, in that sense, beliefs are also codified. They also... Yeah. Yeah, uh, particular yeah. articulations of codification. And how is theatre different from cinema for you uh, in this uh, context? That's, that's very important. Uh, cinema is, of course, uh, uh, an experience which was made possible by new technological conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those technological conditions also uh, burst upon, and that happened in the late 19th to early 20th century, upon the people of the world as a condition of something like a psychological hypnosis or a, or a mesmerism, uh, there was a very strong rupture in how the collective actually experienced performance in cinema. Till then they had experienced performance through ritual, through theater, through all sorts of very powerful artistic experiences. But cinema technologically produced a new kind of experience entirely, I think, which brought in, which, you know, psychoanalysts who work on cinema have shown that, which brought in the play of what they call the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cinema, in a way, directly attacks your, or captures, or uh, enters your unconscious. Your unconscious, the collective unconscious? Now, that's a tricky question. Now, is there a collective unconscious in the sense of a homogenous formation? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
how would you ever demonstrate and you know that? i mean it in the Jungian sense. Now, the Jungian yeah. sense is, of course, so deep and so archaeological that the collective unconscious is formed over millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, cinema is clearly far more instant. Cinema is very contemporary. So, in a way, cinema addresses immediate social realities, immediate images, the images we are surrounded by. So, in a way, if there's an unconscious, this collective unconscious is also highly contemporary unconscious. There could be a deep Jungian Or it could uh, just be a more contemporary version, yeah. way of tapping Absolutely. into it. So, for instance, the great filmmaker Ritik Ghatak mm. is supposed to have brought out the deepest psychic psychic processes of, the, of Bengal, Bengali, uh, Indian society or culture through his images of the Durga, for instance, the goddess, uh, which himself, in a way, um, was he was influenced by Jung when he made those images. That's very interesting. Yeah, so that is there. Nevertheless, we have to recognize that in cinema, in the very spectacle that a cinema is, uh, um, it, it, it is, a, it is a, a spectacle which has a kind of centripetal quality. It is as if the whole film image is one single point of concentration. Mm. As... As opposed to theatre, which would be centrifugal? Uh, it would be. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, this these are just metaphors. Yeah, They course. shouldn't be taken literally of course. Uh, from physics. But uh, theatre is somewhere where you enter the continuum of real, and yet, as you go through the theatre experience, through a certain ritual codification, through other secular ritual processes, you modulate that experience and produce a new kind of relationship with the representation on stage. Unlike cinema, which is a clear technological and ontological rupture. Interesting. And does does this have any meaning for you, Rohit Bhai? Yes. The collective unconscious. Is there a way of tapping into that? Is there yes. a way Actually, of... Actually, the last point reminded me of a story. Maybe it's a joke, but it's about a man who was going to the same movie again and again and again and again. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> and his friend said to him, you've gone to this movie many times. Why, are you, why do you keep going? And then he said, come, I'll show you. Uh-huh. So in the movie, there is a there is a scene where a woman is standing in front of a window and she's in the in the process of taking off her clothes. <laughs> but before the process goes very far, a train comes, blocks her from the view, and then uh, by the time the train has passed, she has turned off the light and gone to sleep. <laughs> and so this man says, one of these days, the train is going to be late. <laughs> Now, this, this, this of course, is a joke for a movie, but it wouldn't be a joke for a theater because you could imagine that one of these days the performance will be different. So there is a certain way in which what's happening in the theater is real in a way in which it's not in a movie. Right, right, right. right. But... Uh, about the about the collective belief yes. is the, how do you tap into that? Is there a way of tapping into the? Is there a way of inferring what the collective unconscious belief might be of a group? Through uh, what you mean is does it go beyond words? Right? Yes. I don't know. I mean, take for example this controversy in Malaysia mm-hmm. over whether Christian uh, ministers are allowed to refer to God as Allah. I don't know if you know about this controversy, but a lower court said that they are allowed, that they are so allowed because Allah is just another name for God, and there are that their their devotees would find the word easy to understand. And then the Supreme Court in Malaysia recently ruled that they are not allowed to use the word Allah. Right, because it will cause confusion and perhaps communal strife, whatever it is. But Mm. the question is. 
is, does this question have an objective answer, right? I mean, can they say uh, it is, after all, the same being for whether it exists or not? But if if it exists, surely it's unique. And so how can it? How can there be two names not referring to the same entity, right? There can be two names for there the same entity. There can be two names for the same entity. But when you say that Christians are not allowed to use the word Allah, then you are in fact saying that their God is either non-existent or different from Allah. Right. right, and if this is the case, then one would say, do they have different consciousnesses or not? Mm. But here is a here is an example of something that happened, which I think is a, is the right approach, because uh, my daughter adopted a young girl from here, from Mumbai, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, recently, uh, while I was still in America, I sent a picture of uh, this young girl to the, the hotel manager where I'm staying, the hotel manager of Astoria. Sure, sure. Right? Now, she's Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. But she wrote back to me saying that God finds people to help the unfortunate and it was so lucky that God found uh, this, uh, us, me and my daughter, to take care of this little girl. Mm -hmm. And it was clear that for her, the word God is neutral. She knows I'm not a Muslim. Makes no difference. Right. So it seems like... Uh, are Hindus and Muslims going to share this, this, this unconscious or are they going to keep the two apparatuses separate, right? And of course, we know very well that, uh, uh, what is his name, uh, Sajan's oldest son? Uh, Dara, Dara Shikun. No. Darashiko, right, Darashiko. Yeah, yeah. He said explicitly that Hinduism and Islam are the same religion and, you know, the, the Great Oceans or something like that is his book on that topic. It mm. seems to me a very important question, but at what level is it going to be decided? Mm. It seems like, are we going to keep these emotions together and merge them into one, one emotion or keep them separate, right? Mm. And uh, of course, I myself believe that the emotion should be allowed to merge. And right? for you, the nomenclature is a big part of it? Whether one calls it Allah or God or no, not at else. all. No, no, mm. because mm. Uh, there is this uh, there is this young Sikh woman, Harshdeep Kaur. She's a well-known singer in mm. Punjabi uh, cinema, mm. and she sings this song Allahu Allahu, right? And uh, her, her teacher was a Sufi Muslim, and so for her there is no contradiction. And mm. of course, she remains a Sikh, and she's a more orthodox Sikh than most. Right. Mm, so mm, I think that mm. these things are very important and maybe uh, different belief systems which lead to conflicts could be resolved by people being a little bit flexible. I feel that the decision of the Malaysian Supreme Court was wrong. Sure, well, sure. You know, I, I, I have a slightly different uh, yes. way of looking at this. Now, it is true. I, I completely uh, share a wish that uh, people are more flexible about this and it simply makes no sense to be not flexible about this. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the fact is, people are not flexible about this. They are not. Yeah. And one has to contend with that, deal with that. Yeah. And I think one relatively reasonable way of looking at it is to for a moment suspend the objective entity to which they are supposed to refer, whether it be God or Allah or whoever, and look at it as actually what it is, which is use of language. When you say Allah, it is a particular use of language. Yes. When you say God, it is a particular use of language. Even and sometimes if, they may be generalized. But well, it is. even if it's generalized, it's still generalized as an operation of language. Yeah. It's not generalized to the point of joining the so-called reality it refers to. Yeah. So to that extent, I do understand why 
communities and governments and states for very, very selfish reasons and reasons of holding on to power through, you know, manipulating people still do make language an issue of extremely restricted access. Mm. I'll say you mm. cannot refer to Allah or you Very cannot. similar to the point Roy Bhai was mentioning earlier in another context. Mm. In other words, we need a theory of language here instead of a theory of divinity mm. or a theory of belief as completely correlated between the act of belief and what you believe in. Mm. What you need is a theory of performativity of language. Mm -hmm. So when I say Allah, I perform a particular linguistic and affective intervention in the discourse of religion, world, politics. That is not exchangeable for the Christian God. That is not exchangeable for the Buddhist and the Hindu God. That is how history has really uh, been... been. Now, at the same time, we know that because it's not exchangeable and yet it's the same world that we live in, there is conflict. Yeah, yeah, there is yeah. I'm, conflict. I'm not convinced of this. Uh, because uh, you see, for example, when I, when I married, uh, then Carol was a person who was... Uh, who had grown up as a Catholic, but then at some stage, her parents decided to become Protestants in order to be more accepted by the community around them. Sure. Right? And Carol rebelled against this and she became an atheist. Mm. Right? Nonetheless, I knew that there was this Christian background. And mm. so when she, when she married, when she and I married, then we had two weddings, a Hindu wedding in the morning mm. and a Christian wedding in the afternoon, which was attended, in fact, by Quine and Putnam. Sure. Right? And... Uh, I felt that this was important and in a way this is also a kind of a joining of different traditions and of course you are right that language is important but we have a choice how we use language, yeah, yeah. right? I think the, the I'm point not that Shomo is making is slightly different. Yeah. Yes. See, I, I, I'm, what, I, what you're saying in a way contributes. In a way. Yeah, yes. if, if, I, if I just finish the point. What you're saying actually reinforces what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying is that language itself has both a degree of flexibility and thresholds of separation. Of course. And it's to be able to negotiate those thresholds yes. and produce that flexibility through acts within language, but also existential, yes. the ones you mentioned, right. in marriage, in relationships, in what is a performative? It's a certain declaration. Yes. So in a sense, an existential and linguistic declaration. But it requires that declaration. It does not happen through the generality of the both first the separation of separate beliefs and then a kind of autofusion of these beliefs, which is a, a slightly loose, lazy, secular way of looking at this. I'm afraid. I agree, but the, yeah. but sure. I, I agree with you. Sure, sure, that sure. Specific sure. existential acts do produce new language. Uh, possibilities, language words, language yes. mixtures. Right. And you're right, completely. Interesting. Yeah. I think, why don't we change tracks a little bit and spend the last 10 minutes or so maybe thinking about um, a slightly different question. Um, what about, is it possible theoretically to influence somebody, either an individual or a group, into believing almost anything? Is it possible? I think it's In the possible. long run, I mean, are there... Are there Things to learn, concepts to discover and unpack. Yes, it's very unfortunate, but it's possible to much greater extent than should be the case. I mean, I think, for example, the polarization in America mm -hmm. has, is a consequence of the fact that once there is a certain antagonism between groups with different philosophies, then people with one philosophy tend to read the media only which agrees with their philosophy and the people with the other. So... Uh, that means that you the, the the conflict remains right now. 
how do you resolve this issue? I don't know. I've thought if I had enough money, perhaps what I could do would be to arrange for uh, a dozen people from each side or perhaps five from each side, each side to get together and be in the same place for a week right and talk to each other as human beings right this is this is it is it as straightforward as that perhaps not right but uh why are so why are beliefs so difficult to change or are they they are difficult because of the fact that you need to be in coherence with your community and relationships with your community are much more important to you than a fact of the matter where where in fact there may be no fact of the matter Right. Mm. I mean, if you believe that the bread that you're eating is the flesh of Jesus Christ and someone else doesn't, there is no fact of the matter which is going to tell you which, right? And then it just needs a certain kind of relaxed attitude to say, oh, he's all right, he's wrong, but that's all right. Sure, sure, sure. Why are beliefs so difficult to well, change? You know, uh, the way I look at it is, as long as there will be skeptics, there will be belief. It is a counterintuitive paradoxical thing that I say, but I think I am saying something substantive, which is this. That it's because you doubt that certain things actually have happened or do happen or they're there is why you need to, in a sense, compensate for that inconsistency or void moment or hollow, which, in a sense, breaks the continuity of life's certainties that you need to make belief statements, belief utterances. Belief comes where there is a moment of, like I said earlier, undecidability. Are beliefs essential? Is it possible to live without a belief? Only when beliefs will... And I'm making the fact-belief yeah, distinction here. Yeah. So beliefs will become redundant or it will not be necessary to have beliefs when we will not doubt. In the sense... When life will become... But can, can't one doubt facts as well? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. One can. And hence there will be belief. So mm. for instance, if I doubt that God exists, yeah, which a lot of people surely doubt, mm -hmm. doesn't make the, all of them atheists. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the interesting point. Because there is an undecidability which brings doubt whether God exists or not, there could very well be, as there could it could turn out to be a moment of some people turning atheists, some other people would make a statement to the tune that God exists, whether I know God exists or not. Yeah. 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 Uh, either you can be like Pascal, who says, I do not know the whether Pascal's God exists. Major. Pascal, yeah. the, the Christian philosopher, yeah. the Jesuit philosopher, yeah. who says that I do not know whether God exists or not, but I will wager that God exists because if I'm wrong, and God does exist. The downsides then are too I'm great. lost. <laughs> because so it's profitable to believe God, that God exactly, exists. Exactly, because the profit is infinite. <laughs> While in the other case, if God does not exist and I'm right, I only get finite profits. But if God <laughs> exists, then I better wager God exists because the profits are infinite. Yeah. Now, from that angle, it's not because I don't doubt that I believe. It's because I doubt that I believe. I put out beliefs. So again, let me go back to Rohit Bhai's mathematical word, axiom. I put out axioms, but I also make those axioms affective deployments, arrows that I shoot into the world. Hence, it becomes also dangerous. Because axioms do not merely result in discursive, theoromatic results. They result in actual, active, existential actions. You know? 
Interesting. Yes, that's the way I look at it. And interesting. And you know, why don't we, for example, if we just think of belief revision, Arud Bhai, in a, in a theoretical, mm. technical yeah. sense, sure. is is that theory reasonably crisp and almost done and dusted? No, it isn't. So no, it isn't. What because, are the difficulties with that? Uh, but let me let me first go sure. to this point that was the last point, sure. which was that uh, it's it's one of the one of the important tenets of Buddhism that one must not give up doubt, right? Mm. And uh, there there are two uh, there are two th- stories that bear on this. One is some lectures given by Wittgenstein, uh, sure. lectures on the on the foundations of mathematics, edited by Cora Diamond. Yeah. And these lectures were attended by Alan Turing, who asked some very, very good questions. And at the end of one interchange between Wittgenstein and Turing, Turing says, I see your point. And Wittgenstein said, I have no point. <laughs> because Wittgenstein's belief was that anything, any philosophical truth must be totally obvious and therefore saying it would be to pretend that it wasn't obvious and therefore you could Before not it say was uttered. it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a precursor to this in, in a statement of the Buddha made 2500 years before Wittgenstein where the Buddha said anyone who says that the Buddha has a ma- message maligns the Buddha. Right. Because truth must be right there. And if truth is right there, then doubt plays no role. And belief yeah. plays no role. And belief plays <laughs> no role. In right. That's, but it's because very, very we need this crutch yeah. of belief. Right. We are not able to live in a state of uncertainty. So in a sense, this entire notion of belief actually calls into question the notion of truth itself. It does. It yes. does. There's right. a very interesting word which Wittgenstein used and uh, some other the French psychoanalyst... Uh, Jacques Lacan used yeah. later in his life when he was actually working with mathematical objects like topological uh, spaces. spaces uh, where he used the word monstration, not demonstration. Monstration. Monstration. Because when it's a demonstration, then the objective method and the thing that you're seeking are both there as two separate things and then the method grasps the object mm-hmm. in a step-by-step scientific manner. It's a right. demonstrative method. Right. Hence, truth is still something to which which is concealed and then you uncover through the right. method. Right. While a demonstration, and here uh, they use uh, Wittgenstein's word showing as different yes. from uh, self-showing, something yes. which you show mm-hmm. instead of demonstrating. Yes. Mm-hmm. Something which shows itself. Right. Mm-hmm. So when something shows itself as a demonstration, then question of belief, even if it's highly subjective, but still believing something will not arise. Mm. Yes. Mm. That, I think, would be a, mm. uh, would be a theoretical, philosophical route to right. your question. Right. That's very, right. very, very interesting. Right. right, right, right. Why don't we go back to the belief revision question, okay. uh, Rohit Bhai? Sure. Is, is that theory done and dusted? What are the difficulties with that? It's, um, a, it's, a, it's a technical theory which uh, deals primarily with the following, that person has a certain set of beliefs mm-hmm. and then he uh, encounters a formula or a statement which is counter to his beliefs. Let's suppose that he believes that uh, the sun is shining and then he somebody tells him it's raining or he looks out the window yeah. and finds that it's raining. Now, he has to alter his whole structure, yeah. right? And uh, it may well be that in this particular case, it's easy, but it could very well be that in some situations, you believe A because you believe B. 
I mean, for example, they, going back to the case of Ben Carson, right? Now, if I understand correctly, I could be wrong, but if I understand correctly, the belief that the earth is 6,000 years old comes from the fact that Jesus is descended from Adam and there is a certain specific genealogy which starts with Adam and ends end with Jesus. And when you add all of these up, then you come to something like 6,000 years if you assume some kind of average life. And so for... Ben Carson's to accept that the earth is 6 billion years old rather than 6,000 years old, he would also have to believe that there is no such genealogy or that Adam was not the first man. And so once he cast doubt on that age of the earth, he cast doubt on the Bible, and then he cast doubt on the belief that he will be saved when he dies. And that belief is very difficult to give up, right? And so... Supposing you have constructed a building, right, from bricks and so on and so forth, and now you discover at the bottom of the edifice that one of the bricks is in fact not made of a strong enough material that perhaps it was not baked long enough. What do you do now? It's if you a, remove it, the whole structure will break down. So and foundational beliefs. There is a foundational belief. Right? Mm, now, mm. in the uh, AGM, of course, are not dealing with such such emotionally, that they're more interested in the practical level. But what they show is that the problem of showing, what of deciding what your new belief should be is NP-complete. Mm-hmm. And uh, in reality, of course, most of us, when we read the newspaper and we are told something, come to a new state of belief without much difficulty. So the question is, how is it that human beings routinely solve a problem which is computationally very difficult? Mm. Right? I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that uh, AGM are themselves. Of course, Alturin is gone, but McKinson and uh, Gerdenfors are still around. Yes. Mm. And mm. Uh, I think McKinson is primarily a mathematician. Gerdenfors is interested. But this is a very important question. How it is that... Uh, people revise their beliefs almost automatically and what AGM show is that the problem is technically extremely difficult. Mm. And does this interplay in any way with the notion of logic and many valued logics and how things can be not necessarily only true or false? Well, that of course could arise, but in this particular case, the problems arise already with the, with, with, with logics where there are just two values and mm. if you introduce more, it gets the problem even will become even more difficult. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. And are you optimistic if we roll forward 500 years, 1000 years, do you think it's possible to have a pristine mathematical theory for belief revision? I I think that probably what will and one, happen... One, yeah, one is not saying that it's desirable, it's just... right. Just a purely intellectual Well, question. I think it's maybe it's a little bit like the belief in the coming of the Messiah or the coming of the Mahdi, <laughs> that the best thing to do is to give up that belief. Because it's belief in that blocks you. What you what you really want is to say, we we can't have that and we don't want that. Don't want that. No. <laughs> because we can live our lives as as they are. We get along somehow. So what would you and your colleagues do? I mean, I mean, clearly there must be lots of uh, smart people all around the world currently working on. Isn't this the holy grail? What's the holy grail for? Well, you see, the holy grail for graduate students is to get a PhD. (laughs) And the holy grail for young professors is to get tenure. And perhaps for older professors, for most of them, the holy grail is to improve their golf game. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, 
<laughs> fundamental questions. <laughs> and you're not being unaddressed. cynical here. No, it's most unfortunate. I mean, there was there was actually an article in the New York Times about <laughs> this issue, which is that philosophy has become a kind of an industry within the university and relatively few professors or students of philosophy are actually doing it, which means uh, that the subject is not really mind, but but the philosophical questions are in fact extremely important. And they, as, as you pointed out, they also uh, interact with legal questions. And mm. legal questions can't be left in a state of doubt because you have to decide whether this man goes to prison or not. Yeah. You can't be deciding for a thousand years whether God exists, right? So it's 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 very, very difficult. And uh, I would like for philosophy to become a less professional subject, but I don't think the prospects for that are very good. <laughs> Shoma, what is yeah, your I, take on I, this? I, very briefly, uh, um, I, I... What's I, the future? What's well, the future? I, well, revision. Let's start with the word revision. Yeah. Now, of course, the, uh, the revisionist uh, perspective and belief is something very important. And uh, it is uh, quite amazing, fantastic how ordinary, non-specialized procedures of life actually produce extremely wise revisionist moves, which great professors with all the uh, tools... What, what, what of, do you allude to? What do you have in mind? Uh, which, which is how people, for instance, change their ways of life. They just decide to one day to take uh, uh, instead of driving their cars take a bicycle to work yeah while maybe two days back if you ask them uh, whether they could imagine a life without driving cars they would say oh that's not possible they actually start believing in a new way of life mm. uh, and many such does this surprise uh, you in a deep kind of uh, way? no it does or? not surprise me mm -hmm. this part does not surprise me because you see it seems to me that within what could be called a logic of variations. What apparently seems dual is not dual. One is can be topologically derived from the other. So a cycle driving a bicycle actually can be derived from driving a car as the opposite. Yeah. A driving a bicycle can lead to um, topologically to driving a car. But driving a bicycle and driving a car are dually opposed to, for instance, withdrawing from the very process of a city life or an urban existence. There's a kind of withdrawal, a rebellion, which is not part of the logic of variability. The second kind of logic is the logic of change. Mm -hmm. I, I, I uh, oppose change to variability. Mm -hmm. So revision is part of variability. Mm -hmm. So you, you revise beliefs and it reflects a kind of subaltern wisdom of life mm -hmm. that you keep revising. Of course, sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. Many times you don't. Mm -hmm. So all that is part of the logic calculus of variations. Mm -hmm. But then there is another thing which I am more interested in, mm -hmm. which is the question of change. When you actually... And you mean irreversible change? Irreversible change. Mm -hmm. Which leads to what in my language I call event. Mm -hmm. Following certain philosophers like the French mathematician as philosopher uh, Alain Badiou. Mm. Uh, event. Mm. Now, an event is not really part of the logic of variations. Mm -hmm. It's not derivable topologically from something which exists as a space or a declaration in the world that we know. It's some kind of a rupture. For you. Some kind of a rupture. Mm. Now, that seems to me to be the really interesting and challenging thing to always think about. Mm. And there I completely agree with what Rohit Bhai said. 
uh, uh, it is a far more important and difficult question to deal with than the uh, extraordinary but still within the logic of variations horizon of a messiah. Because a messiah's coming is an extraordinary perspective, but it's still a variation on the present to hope for some messiah to come. It's not radical change. It's not rupture. <laughs> yeah. The rupture, in fact, and, is... And, and, and for you, an event is is always accompanied by surprise? Surprise in a, in a, in a very uh, rigorous sense. Mm. Surprise in the sense that something which cannot be codified by the codes of the world or its possible logical variations. Mm. So in a sense, an event is what brings up the question of decision. Mm. So I now try and move the word, the concept of belief towards the concept of decision, mm. Mm. which is not really part of so much the game theoretic way of looking at decision, mm. but decision where there is no decidability. So decision, for instance, is, I'll, I'll give you two examples here. Yeah. And first, is, and both are from, not from philosophy, but from theater and cinema. Sure. So one is the play by Bertolt Brecht, Galileo. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a scene in Galileo when Galileo has gone to the uh, court and he's meeting all the great uh, ancient Aristotelian philosophers and astronomers who are part of the court scientists with his telescope. And uh, he is saying that look through the telescope at the moon and what you'll see on the moon will immediately tell you that old astronomy has to be revised. Sure. Now, what happens is, they say, yes, we'll look through the telescope. But before that, let's have a disputation, a proper formal disputation on Aristotle. He says, yes, yes, Aristotle is the greatest philosopher. But bef- would you please look through the telescope? <laughs> they say, yes, yes, we'll look through the telescope. But before that, let's have a disputation on Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> and he says, of course, Thomas Aquinas is a venerable doctor, but let us, uh, will you please look through the telescope? What does this say? And they do not look through the telescope. What does this say? Because it says that the act of looking through the telescope, moving the telescope up to the, to the skies, will make them now face the consequences of that act. Yeah. Because they are as human as anybody else. Their senses are as real as anyone else's senses. Yeah. So they'll have to really take on the material reality of having looked through the telescope. Yeah. Which yeah. they do not. Till the yeah. end till the end of the play, they do not look through the telescope. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> now that act is I think I what I what could be called the contingent act. That's very interesting. That, then the second example is a film that um Alain Renai made mm-hmm. called Love and Death. Mm-hmm. In which what you have is Jerome uh, two two Two, two men, a, boy, a man and a woman, the man dies. They're deeply in love. Mm. The man dies. What happens is he dies and he kind of comes back alive. Mm-hmm. He actually dies, but he just comes back for some, again, just like that. Mm. But he, what he says is, look, I've come back, but I'm going to die anytime now, finally. Mm. And the wife says, not the wife, whatever, I forget, but the, the girlfriend, the, the woman says, she is not going to let him die. Uh-huh. She says, no, I love you and I will not let you. She says, no, it's going to happen. I'm going to die any time. And so she, the entire film is about her absolutely resolve. passionate resolve to not let him die. Now comes a moment when they go to their very close friends who are two good Christians, uh-huh. believing Christians. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, 
you know, they tell him what's happened. And they don't say, oh, this is, this is unchristian or whatever. All they say is that, look, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't fight this because if he dies, that's his chance for eternal salvation. Yeah. Yeah. And the girl says, the Bible was written before my love for Jerome existed. Wow. <laughs> now, this is like turning yes. the telescope up. Right. Yes. That's outstanding. Yeah. That's outstanding. Now, this is not a skeptical position. That's outstanding. This is a singular act against the whole logic of belief in terms of the entire doctrinal weight, but also the little variations that's possible within the wisest part of subaltern ordinary life. It's outstanding. Thank you. So this is a, the kind of thing that I have in mind. Thank you. It's a great note to end this on and we look forward to having you all soon again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. <laughs>